Well, good morning. Today we're going to be looking at the will of God as we begin Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. And uh, as we look at this powerful scripture, we'll probably have two more um, visits to this scripture. We're going to be looking at the faithful who are in Christ Jesus next week. And then the week after that, how Paul was called by God. So before we continue too far, let's pray. God Almighty, we praise you. You are God in the highest, and we just thank you so much for your goodness. We thank you so much for this time that we can come together and lift our hearts and give them to you. We thank you so much for one another and the encouragement we give, get from one another, and Lord, we just thank you so much for how you've uniquely placed us in a body that we can not only minister to one another, but minister unto you as well. May we bless you with our hearts, and may we give you all that we have to lift you up and give you the praise that you deserve. Thank you so much for being our Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning we're going to be looking at Ephesians 1.1, and in the ESV it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So this is the beginning of the letter. Now, to give you a little bit of background on the letter, the original manuscripts do not have who are in Ephesus. And so many believe that the original manuscripts was a letter written by Paul that says, to the saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. It's believed that the original letter was a circular letter that was written to the churches and so that the churches would receive them and they would be able to learn from this beautiful and powerful letter. As you'll see, there's a lot of generalities in this letter, whereas the other letters like to the Corinthians and the Galatians speak specifically to those congregations. If we remove this portion here, there is very little to say in direct correlation to those that are in Ephesus. And it quickly becomes a general circulating letter, a pastoral letter that Paul would have written to the churches to teach them about the doctrines of God and his love. Not only for his love for his own son, Jesus Christ, but his incredible love for us as well. So as we look at this, we're going to look today at this phrase here, the will of God. Because we see that Paul says that he is an apostle for one reason and one reason only. That God pointed him. It was by the will of God and not by the will of man. A lot of times you see today, we see people trying to fit people, so to speak, uh, a square peg into a round hole and say, you must do this. We need you to do this. And that person doesn't really feel compelled to do it. Why? Because oftentimes God hasn't called that person. And if God hasn't called that person, we're really forcing something to happen in the church. And we really need to be cognizant of how the Spirit is working in people and in the church. We've all been created uniquely, 
But we all have special talents. Well, sometimes we try and force people to do something that they're not really good at. They haven't been blessed with those skills. Well, when God calls a man, we know that he outfits him and qualifies him as he calls him. And in this case, Paul clearly states that he is an apostle by one reason and one reason only, by God's will. So we're going to look at God's will and look at a few scriptures because when it comes to God's will, and I'm going to be honest now, there's no way I can give credit and fully describe the characteristic and the nature of God's will as it relates to his power and his love and his holiness. It's really, even the Bible says, it's beyond our own comprehension. God's wisdom and his ways and how he works. A lot of these things are beyond our own human comprehension. And so we look to scripture to get some shedding of light into these topics. But the reality is, is that I feel that I, as a minister, cannot do justice to God's power as it pertains to his will. So I'm just letting you know that I'm going to do the best that I can. And we're going to look at a few scriptures. And as we do that, hopefully the Spirit will move, and hopefully the, the Scriptures will speak to you as the Spirit moves, and you can gain a sense of the vastness and the power and the um, just the infinite might of God's will and His wisdom. The first thing that I want to call us to is Job chapter 38. A lot of us are familiar with the story of Job and how Job is afflicted. And then much of the book takes the course of debate as to why Job is going through the affliction and the suffering that he does go through. And as these men sit there and debate God's character out of a whirlwind, as it says in 38, out of the whirlwind, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said. The context that I want us to know is that these men are sitting here debating God's character and why God would do such a thing. And then out of the whirlwind, God speaks. And he speaks to Job. And in the words that he speaks, he speaks in an, in a, in an eternal way such that you can gain a feel for what it was like before earth was created, as he was creating the universe. So I'm just going to read a few things because it gives kind of an insight. And in verse 2 it says, Who is that this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, and I will question you, and you make it known to me. So God is questioning Job, and here's the first question. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Pretty difficult question to answer. And God says, tell me if you have understanding. And God says, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. And God is calling in to question the wisdom of these men. They're sitting there and they're debating all these things like, 
we do today. Well, why does God do this? And we're sitting there and we'll go, well, we think God does this. And we think God does this for this reason and this reason. And, and we sit there and we try and put our human brains around what God is doing. And it's simply impossible. And if we continue, he says, like verse 8, Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the moon, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it, and set bars and doors, and said, Thus far shall you come, and no farther. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. And as he continues to go on, and he says in verse 31, Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Speaking of the constellations. And God continues in like verse 33, Do you know the ordinances of heaven? These are questions that humans can't possibly answer because we have no ability to do so. And so when it comes to the will of God, God's wisdom calls forth things into action. Scripture says that by his words, the universe was created. This was his will. He spoke it, and therefore it happened. When it comes to these events, it's almost inconceivable and impossible for us to really think about how it all went down. Think about before the earth was created. And here in this time, it's just God the Father, God the Son, the Holy Spirit, and his army of angels. That's all that existed before the foundation of the world was created and before God stretched out the heavens and created the universe. So we have the Holy Council, and then we know about the fall of Satan. But in all that, God predetermined certain things. One was salvation, that salvation would come by no other name than Jesus Christ. The second thing is, is he decided that he would create man. But in that decision, he also decided that only certain humans would be saved. This is the will of God. As we continue, we look at a different aspect of God's will. Psalm 33. Psalm 33, 10 through 12. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The author of Ecclesiastes, who we believe to be Solomon, puts it this way. Who can make crooked what the Lord has made straight? And who can make straight what the Lord has made crooked? It's impossible for us to go against God's will. We know from not only history, but the experience of those who have gone before us in Scripture, that when you oppose God, that is not such a good thing. God's will will stand forever. 
In Isaiah 55, 9, he also puts it this way. I'll read 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Again, it's impossible for us to comprehend God's wisdom in its entirety. The last thing we see is that in Numbers 23, 19, that God's ways are nothing like our ways. In 23:19, it says in Numbers, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and it will not be fulfilled? Whatever God wills, happens. Which brings us to our next point, the doctrine of election. It has been said about the doctrine of election, and we tend to kind of joke about it in our household because of the way it was mentioned. But it is true, there is nothing more offensive to mankind than the doctrine of election. Why is that? And we'll get into it. But initially it's this. God chooses who gets into heaven, not us. For mankind, that is difficult because for us, we value our free will. Men value their ability to choose. And if you talk to most Christians who do not really have a good understanding of Scripture, and you ask them why they are a Christian, most will tell you because they chose to be a Christian. But when we get into Scripture, we understand that that's not the case. That there is this work by God, and if you can visualize yourself walking in the Midianite desert, feeding your flock, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you see a burning bush. And you go over in curiosity to the bush, and you're like, what is this? And the bush starts speaking and tells you to remove your shoes because the ground you're standing on is holy ground. And you realize that you're now talking to God. What is God doing to Moses? God himself is drawing Moses to him. And this is how God works. If we look at the book of John in multiple scriptures, in John chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus states, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent him draws me. So no one can come to Christ unless the Father in heaven draws that person to Christ. So we see that there's this revealing work going on. That when we go through life, God chooses to reveal himself to people. And in that revealing, God draws people to him. And as he draws people to him, and they come to a saving faith and belief in Jesus Christ, he imparts on them the Holy Spirit. So let's talk about this doctrine of election a little bit. Because that's it in its nutshell. 
But we see in various scriptures, Romans 8.29 and 30, uh, Mark 13.27 and Luke 18.7, these various scriptures, how God works in his election of the saints. In Romans 8.29, it says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be born among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So sometime before heaven, as we know it, the universe rather, the heavens, and before the creation of the world, God elected his chosen children. How do we know who those elected chosen children are? How do those elected chosen children come into the church? Well, it was God who decided that through foolish preaching by foolish men like me, that those who would be saved would become saved. In other words, God would use the testimony of men as we share about God and his love to attract other men to him. As we share the gospel, God is using us to bring in his elect. A lot of people will sit here and go, well, if it has been predetermined who has been saved, what's the point in coming to church? What's the point in even sharing the gospel if God already knows who is going to be saved? And if God's will can't be thwarted and can't be cast aside, why do we even go through the motions of doing church, of practicing our faith, of even obeying God? Why do we even do these things if God has already chosen? Well, number one, as I mentioned, God has chosen the method of preaching to fool the world and to fool the carnal man that they would be foolish through this method that he has ordained, which is preaching. And through the testimony of men, as I mentioned, God would call his elect and reveal himself. This is God's chosen method. The other thing is, is that we want to sit here and go, as we mentioned, why do we even obey the law? Why do we even have to do church? Well, there's a term, it's called antinomianism. And what it means is that through faith, we have no obligation to obey God. That means that we basically throw out the Ten Commandments. That shows a very shallow view of what Scripture is all about. To sit here and say, well, that because I believe in Christ, and the Bible says if I believe, I'll be saved. Therefore, I can go do anything I want because I believe and I'll be saved. And they reduce one scripture and they throw out all the rest. It's important for us to understand that God gave us his spirit so that we can be holy, so that we can live the life of holiness that has been exemplified by his son, Jesus Christ. And by no means do we simply throw away the moral law 
because we've come to a saving faith. No, rather because we have a faith, we now have the zeal, the passion, and the power through the Holy Spirit to please God in a holy-like manner. As we continue to unpeel the book of Ephesians, we're going to see that God has adopted us as his sons into his kingdom. And what does that mean? We know from adoption that when you adopt an individual, there are certain legal qualifications and requirements that must be met. Well, in order for us to be adopted as sons, we will see that God is calling us to holiness. And that ultimately those that have been elected to be his children, through his power, his saving grace, and his Holy Spirit, we will become sanctified and therefore holy, being fit for adoption as sons into heaven. These are very difficult concepts. Paul really addresses this issue, Romans 9, uh, 13 through 23. It says, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whoever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out the same lump, one vessel for honor, honorable use, and the other for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Do you see what's going on there? Something powerful has been explained to us. And it's essentially this. God can do whatever he wants. If we look back to when we were kids and we were in elementary school and perhaps we made a little drawing or a paper airplane or something like that, didn't we have the right to color that drawing the way we wanted? And didn't we have the right to make the airplane the way we wanted? And if we didn't like the airplane, didn't we have the right to crumple it up and throw it away? Well, by no means are we reduced to the standard and value of a paper airplane. But the concept is the same. God in his infinite wisdom has chosen some of us beforehand to be his saints in Jesus Christ. Why? 
and how, I don't know. We just know that he chose, which brings us up to our next point. And that is the argument of Calvinism versus Armenianism. These are two concepts that may or may not come up in your walk as you, as you read through the scriptures and you read about God. Well, Calvinism is essentially a five-point theory that gives God full sovereignty over everything. It says that God beforehand chose who his elect would be, and this would be regardless of anything that we did. That it would be without, because some people, and I'll get to the, of what Armenianism is, but Calvinism essentially says that God has full sovereignty and decision-making and that he has the full exercising right to bring his will about. That he does everything. This is Calvinism. Everything is done by God. There is no work on our part other than the repentance, the response to be holy, but the revealing by God is done by him, the calling by God is done by him, the work for us to be drawn to him is the power and influence of the Spirit, and we come to him. It's God's will in action. That's Calvinism in a nutshell. Now, I said there's five points. You can look those five points up. But essentially, it gives full reign and authority to God and his power. Then there's the Armenian camp. The Armenian camp came up around the 1700s. That God chose his elect based on the pre-knowledge that we would choose to have faith. So Armenians believe that God had the foreknowledge that we would make a choice for him. And because he had that ability to look into the future, that's how he created his elect. So it's now based on our choice. That's the difference of the two camps. Okay? For me, it is clear that the Bible completely supports the theories and the doctrines of Calvinism. However, I want to make this clear just as many other theologians have. Whether you believe in Calvinism or Armenianism does not dictate whether you're saved. Okay? It has no bearing on your salvation. The Bible says to have a faith in Jesus Christ. And I believe that we all have that here today. So when we look at these two different camps, that's how they work. Personally, I like giving credit for God for everything. Because personally, I don't think I can make a decision smart enough to understand the power and the vastness of God's might. His love and his mercy for me. I think I need him to woo me and draw me in. And if you look at the theologians over time, starting with Augustine, you go through Spurgeon, you go through Arthur Pink, you go through Tozer, uh, Franklin Graham, um, the list just goes on and on of those pastors and ministers who believe in Calvinism. 
the Bible is too strong to support the, the sovereignty and the will of God in the doctrine of election and how it comes about, in my opinion, to give us credit for making a decision that our salvation would hinge upon. I think that gives man too much credit. But again, either way, whatever you decide to believe, that does not determine your salvation. Next, we see that Christians live for the will of God. Micah puts it great. Very small prophetic book just before the New Testament. And in 6.8 it says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. In 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul says, In everything you do as a Christian, glorify God. So when it comes to being a Christian, Christians realize that they live for the will of God. That if God wants them to do something, it is to the delight of a Christian to do it for God. They understand who the Holy One is. And they understand the importance of pleasing the Holy One. And they understand the importance of God's will. As it pertains not only to his kingdom. But to reaching the lost. That when we work with God. And we operate in his will. That God uses us to reach those who desperately need we can look out into the world today and we can see a world that is hurting, a world that is hating, a world that is lacking in love that desperately needs Jesus Christ. We see that. In addition, it's very important that we understand that only a Christian can discern what the will of God is. Earlier in the sermon I mentioned that when we come to a saving belief, a saving faith in Jesus Christ, that he gives us his Holy Spirit. As we see in 1 Corinthians, oftentimes people are confused by the scriptures. They read the scriptures and they don't understand what they say. We've heard people, well, the Bible is confusing. How do you understand what it says? This comes about in only one way. It says, but as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person, which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, 
and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Do you see the power of what he just explained to us? How often have we heard, well, I don't understand these things. Well, number one, who can understand them if somebody hasn't explained them to us? That explanation needs to happen by the revealing of God's Spirit. As God's Spirit enlightens us, we gain understanding as to what he's teaching us. I have a Christian brother, and my Christian brother thinks it would be a great idea if the Bible was taught in public schools. Here's the problem with that, because we think it's a good idea. But what did this scripture just tell us? So if there's 30 people in a class, and five of them are Christians, and 25 of them are not, how many of them are going to understand the scriptures? Five. The other 25 are going to be like, I don't care. And number two, they're going to be like, what did you just say? That doesn't mean anything to me. It would like be me taking a class with Lily on how to dress a doll. Number one, it doesn't mean anything to me. It doesn't speak to me. And the concept of, of even dressing dolls doesn't even resonate with me. So when we bring the Bible into a classroom, this is what happens. Paul clearly says right here, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are falling to him. On the surface level, it seems like a very good idea to put the Bible in a classroom. But when we read this scripture, it brings to mind, do not give what's valuable to the dogs. Do not cast your pearls before the swine. Have you ever seen a pig dressed up in pearls? What would that look like? What would a pig dressed up in pearls look like? They wouldn't even know they're dressed up. And then they go play in the mud with all this fancy stuff. This is what happens when you give something valuable to a person who does not appreciate it. If you come up to a person on the street and you start speaking the mysteries of Jesus Christ to them, over their head. Scripture must be spiritually discerned. A spiritual person, when you speak to them, understands what you are saying. As it says here, and we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. When we try to do things that somebody can't comprehend, it's a waste. I'm not saying we don't share the gospel, but somebody needs to understand that they need Jesus before they can understand the mysteries of Jesus. The way a person understands they need Jesus is that they understand that they've done wrong things, that their sin hurts God. 
They understand that they need God in order to live a holy life, and that without God it is impossible to please Him. A spiritual person understands these things. A natural person does not. Most natural people think that there is no issue with them whatsoever, and that they have no need for Jesus Christ. Until a person understands the need for Jesus, the mysteries of the gospel are truly wasted on them. Until a person sees the ugliness of their sin, and how they hurt people, and hurt God by the things that they do, until then, the mysteries of the gospel are wasted. A person needs to know how broken they are before they need to understand or before they can even understand they need to be fixed. Have you ever seen people go through life and they have no idea they have cancer? And then at the very end, they go in for a checkup and they're like, hey, something's not right. You have stage four cancer. Did you know that? They're like, no, I feel fine. Up until that point, they had no idea that they needed treatment. Until it was revealed to them that they had cancer. Now they want treatment. They want to do everything they can to make themselves better because they want to eradicate that cancer out of their body. Well, when a Christian understands who they are before a holy God, it's the same they understand that they have this cancer called sin and that the only cure for it is Jesus Christ. That's a Christian. Until we understand our sin, the brevity of it, and the damage it causes, we'll never understand why it's so important to live for God. Because we're going to sit here and think that our sin is okay and that doing the Christmas and Easter stuff that most Christians do is going to be okay. And that at the end, at some point, everything's just going to work out. A Christian understands that they need God. The last uh, scripture I want to point us to before we wrap up is 2 Peter 1.10, towards the back of the New Testament. And it's interesting, in, in 2 Peter, Peter is writing to Christian Jews. And he says something that is absolutely it's, it's powerful. Let me start off with verse 3. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life, and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he granted to his, us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now listen to this. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And then listen to this. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. What does this mean? This means, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. Peter is writing that the Christian practices these qualities, and when they do, and they walk in these qualities of virtue, of steadfastness, of self-control, brotherly affection, love, godliness, when you practice these things, you confirm your calling and election in Jesus Christ. He is saying that a Christian lives a certain way, and when you do that, you confirm, not only in your own mind, but in the world's mind, that you absolutely, without uncertainty, you belong to Jesus Christ. Very powerful stuff. As we consider that, we as Christians want to follow in the footsteps. There's two scriptures here, and then I'll wrap up. Matthew 7.21. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Christians do the will of God. What is the will of God? Let's look at John 6.40. The will of God in John 6.40 says this, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up. The will of the Father is to believe in Jesus, to glorify God, and to follow Him. This is simple. But we as Christians tend to make it more difficult than it needs to be. Cannot emphasize enough living in the will of God. Spurgeon puts it this way in the notes for today's quote. When your will is God's will, you will have your will. So we're encouraged as Christians to line our will with God's will. And as we line ourselves with God's will, things start to happen. For God and his kingdom and God becomes glorified. And as God is glorified, the world will turn to him. It's important for us to be mindful not only of our own regenerating work in our own lives, but how God wants to use us to follow in the footsteps of Christ to draw men to the Father. Amen? Let's pray. Father Almighty, we praise you. We thank you so much for your goodness. We thank you so much for your will, your sovereignty, and for calling us as your elect. Lord, we thank you so much for your mercy, compassion on our lives, and you deserve so much praise. And Lord, as we go through the week, it is my prayer that we would look for opportunities to walk by the Spirit and be in your will. That we would please you by doing things that please you by refocusing our minds and our lives and our lifestyles to walk and to cater to your will.
We thank you so much for this and the ability to do it. We know it's an honor and a privilege. Thank you for being our God in Jesus' name.